Today's episode is brought to you by We Break You Buy. Interested in sports cards and memorabilia? Check out We Break You Buy on TikTok. We Break You Buy is a small operation run by three brothers, offering spots for a chance at winning some incredible sports cards and memorabilia. That's We Break You Buy. Check it out today on TikTok. impromptu episode of why wasn't it better i am your host patrick darms and i'm your co-host anton paras and it's just us today with a very special black friday recording yeah folks enjoy this black friday special it's a great deal it's uh brought to you free for your listening pleasure percent off yeah, we, um, this is um this is not part of our regularly scheduled programming. This is a bit of a last minute recording on our part. As listeners may know, we've been really enjoying the theming of the different focuses of each podcast season. And this particular episode is outside of that theme. Isn't that right, Pat? It is. We are covering a brand new movie today. One that was actually technically was in theaters, if only for a weekend, I believe. But this is primarily a Netflix release. But before we get to the film, I uh, just want to say I hope everyone had a happy and healthy and fun and fulfilling Thanksgiving. I know I did, or at least I hope I will. But I know (laughs) I will, even though, you know, we're recording this technically before Thanksgiving. Because we like to give ourselves a couple of days of buffer so that we can edit and make the YouTube video and whatnot. But um, yeah, two episodes in one week. This is, you know, a little gift to the listeners. Yes. And I'm with you there on the premonitions for just a fun and relaxing and enjoyable Thanksgiving. So yeah, for, for, course, for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, not just our American listeners, for those of you who do not celebrate Thanksgiving, we hope you're having a happy and healthy long weekend, regardless, whatever you're doing, whatever you're celebrating, as we move into this holiday season. And in a couple weeks, we're going to start covering those Christmas movies. I know everyone's looking forward to that. Well, here we are today. We talked a bit about this film. We teased that it was in theaters for a little bit. Yeah, it was. But this is something that's outside of the silver screen for the most part and right direct brought direct to your home or that's wherever right. you may watch. Yeah. Well, it's only on one place, Netflix. Well, you could watch on your phone technically and watch on that's the That's right. You could watch on your phone, your TV, your your tablet, your laptop. Um, and and the film. What what is, what is what is what is a film? It's the killer. The new Boom. film directed by David Fincher. I don't even know if we were going to cover this initially. Maybe eventually we would have, but I was watching it this past Friday and I made the offhand remark to you that we ought to cover it because I made a mistake. Being a Netflix film, I automatically misjudged the level of hype this was receiving. And I really should have known better because anything directed by David Fincher is a big deal. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean... There's no denying that Fincher has been able to enjoy decades of success and some films arguably on like top films of all time. So it's especially with someone with this pedigree, it's hard not to look at the films that he makes today and especially this film that was picked up by Netflix and compare it to the man's repertoire. Indeed. So the, the episode that the listeners would have heard last, which at this point would be Cleopatra, that's the oldest film that we've covered so far on this podcast. And this one is going to be the newest because this is not even two weeks old. Oh, and Anton, I did have an update for you, unrelated to the killer. I just finished reading John Grisham's The Exchange. It's technically the sequel to The Firm. I know you were kind of curious about that when we were covering the Pelican Mm -hmm. Brief. Yeah, I enjoyed it, but it's not really a sequel. It's kind of a misnomer to call it that. It's got some of the main characters, from the firm, you get Mitch McDear and his wife. 
but it's not a continuation of the story from the firm at, at all, which I'm kind of grateful for. Mm-hmm. There was no like cliched plot about the mafia seeking revenge on him 30 whatever years later. So it's it's a completely unrelated story. So if if you are a Grisham fan, I recommend reading it. But if if you are expecting some kind of a continuation or a direct sequel to The Firm, you're going to be disappointed because it is not that. But it was a pleasant enough read. I enjoyed it. Nice. Well, I think that a lot of our Grisham fans who are who are listeners love to hear this update. And at the same time, too, we'll be I'm I'm, I'm hoping we'll be visiting some some uh, more novel adaptations and more Grisham in the future. I do believe we will be. We have a well, few Grishams on there on the list. And I know actually and I, and I know for a fact, I think for the remainder of this season and next season, we do have some novel adaptation that we'll be going over. So, oh, plenty. plenty. Oh, yeah, we've yeah. So we're 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 set there. Um, but back to back to the killer. Yes, please, Anton. Would you intro this for us? Gladly. After a fateful near miss, an assassin battles his employers and himself on an international manhunt. He insists isn't personal. Released on November tenth, twenty twenty three, by Netflix, Plan B Entertainment, Boom Studios, and Panic Pictures. Directed by David Fincher. Screenplay by Andrew Kevin Walker, based on the graphic, a French graphic novel, The Killer, written by Alexis Mats Nolent, and illustrated by Luc Jacquemont, starring Michael Thrustmaster, Charles Parnell, Carrie O'Malley, Tilda Swinton, Sala Baker, and Arliss Howard, with a budget of $175 million, with an asterisk on that, according to IMDb, and a box office at well, we don't have that right now. So uh, Netflix doesn't share, of course, uh, numbers quite as I'd say like comparable to the same box office typical numbers that we're able to share. So we're going to have to use a few things as proxies. On Wikipedia, it said the box office was like three hundred thousand, and that's not that's but not a fair they, comparison. Yeah, then they took it down. I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, it was in theaters for all of three days. You know, before we dive into why this movie was chosen, I will have to admit, I was totally just not paying attention to the buzz at all for this film when someone told me like a few weeks ago, like, oh, you stoked about the killer film? Um, Where do you think my mind went to? Well, I know you were thinking of John Woo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I was you know too, me too initially. You I was know like, me oh, are they, you... they remaking the John Woo film? You know me too well. I'm like, oh, sweet, John Woo, love that. Yeah. So that's funny. But you know, that aside, um, Pat, like, we have a fun surprise episode for our listeners. Why are we? Why are you even covering 2023's The Killer? David Fincher. That's the answer. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. most consistently brilliant filmmakers of all time. One of my favorite filmmakers of all time. At this point, he's built up a massive following. He is every bit as loved as Martin Scorsese or Ridley Scott. He's a living mm-hmm. legend. Anytime he attaches his name to something, it's a big deal. I think the reason I had the same reaction you did is what I kind of hinted at earlier. Is Any Netflix film or I should say any film that's not getting a theater release in my very old school mind automatically feels smaller to me. But this one still had a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement, especially after learning that Fincher had been trying to develop this project as early as 2007. A movie about an assassin based on a French graphic novel, that sounds cool. A movie starring Michael Glassbreaker, who is indeed a talented actor Mm -hmm. in in the lead role. I'm interested. All joking aside, you know, we gave his acting kind of a lukewarm assessment on the on the Prometheus episode, but he is a very talented actor. I, I do like what he's doing. He's just not in a lot of films that I naturally gravitate towards, but this was certainly one of them. And the reviews for this were great. You know, 85% Rotten Tomato score. That's very promising. And I did end up seeing it. I watched it twice in the past few days to prepare for this. What about you? Yeah, same, same. The the first watch always to just consume and enjoy, not try to have any lens on it. And the second watch to have that lens. And with that, I will admit some fast forwarding. 
I will admit the same. There was a couple moments where I just pushed it along, which we'll get to. We'll get to. You're a big comic guy, Anton. Did you read the graphic novel? I, I have not. It's not one that I was familiar with. And yourself? Nope, never heard of it. That doesn't but, mean anything, though. You know I'm right. not. I'm more of a casual graphic novel comic book guy. Uh, yeah, that's why it, I asked you first. I, I just thought, like, if there's anyone who's heard of it, it's Anthony. And I mean, and to be fair, even doing the research on the graphic novel and looking at the story, it's not nece- not necessarily like, you know, uh, it's not a story that hasn't been visited before. I mean, we just talked about John Woo. There have been countless stories about assassins. So, but at the same time, we're we get like a fresh taken perspective with the lens of with a story written by you know again a french graphic novel but now through the directive lens of david fincher so that's where kind of we're we're how we're approaching our our critical view of this film right i have to say right out of the gate i'm intrigued by the idea of david fincher doing what is essentially pulp Mm, not every project that a filmmaker has to be involved in has to be some quote-unquote important biopic that tackles complex issues or, or world-shaking events. You know what I mean? Like, not everything has right. to be Mank. Not everything has to be Oppenheimer. There's nothing wrong with this. I am interested in this kind of project. Right, and and I agree with you. I but And at the same time, like, it's films like this that really does test, like, a director's ability to elevate a story, right? Yes, so yes. sometimes it's the most simple ingredients that can makes that can make the most complex dishes. So let's think about that perspective when we start to talk about our thoughts on the film. Um, before we get into the production history, I do want to call out the budget. According to IMDb, it's $175 million. I'm taking that with a grain of salt. I would not be surprised if it was anything over $100 million. I would expect that number to come down. Netflix is occasionally uh, very unwilling to share that type of financial information. So f- as far as we know, this is just some guesstimate that someone put on IMDb. We really don't know. A hundred million seems a lot more believable to me. You got to think Fincher. He's, he's a big name director. He's going to get a high salary. His producer wife, Fassbender, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who of course did the music, they're all getting paid well. 175 mil seems quite high to me, though. Just wanted to call that out. Right. And maybe you start to teasing a little bit about the very, very common question, where does the money go when looking at these budgets? Right. Well, I certainly went down a rabbit hole on that, doing the research for this, which we'll get into. We'll get into. And of course, doing a brand new movie, we've only done a handful of them. It's always interesting because it's a snapshot, right? We don't have the benefit of hindsight. Like the film we just covered on the last episode, Cleopatra, it's a 60-year-old film. There's been literal books written about it. And this is the total opposite, right? We have very little information to work with. It's just your initial reaction. You don't have a lot of time to absorb the film and think about it over time and maybe watch it a couple different times and maybe in different moods that you're in. That's mm-hmm. why I don't envy being um, a traditional film critic. That's a lot of pressure, right? You don't have a lot of time to really absorb a, a film, right? How many of these films do we cover where it's like we've had the benefit of watching them sometimes dozens of times to really formulate our thoughts and our opinions and our feelings about them? Not so here. And- this is a snapshot. Absolutely. And and also just the scrutiny on the side of those of us that really look at these films with a critical lens, people are going to scrutinize that and say, like, one take of my vision of the film, like five years ago, can t- totally change. And I think like that's important to consider as well. Taste can change over time. So just Definitely. I think like something to be cognizant of. We're being as fair as we can, but time will tell as we continue to maybe even find out more about the film and as history goes on. Yeah, I think this is probably going to be a good one to revisit in a year or two because Fincher's films always require multiple viewings, in my opinion, except for Alien 3. Except for Alien 3. Yeah, but we don't count that. But for different reasons, this is why I'm looking forward to uh, covering Avatar The Way of Water, which is an episode we're going to be releasing Mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks for the one-year anniversary of that film because 
I haven't rewatched it yet. I saw it just once in the theater when it came out opening weekend a year ago. I've had a year to ruminate on it. Or in your case, Anton, watch it for the first time. Yeah, and I'm excited to check it out. Uh, I I definitely wasn't as I didn't feel quite as compelled to see it in the to see the sequel in theaters. I thought the first one was just fine, but I will check it out and make sure that I have a ready analysis for the episode. Well, uh, I hope you put an entire afternoon aside for yourself because uh, it's three hours. Oh, wonderful. Um, <laughs> but this film that we're talking about was only two hours, which made rewatching yeah. it pretty breezy. Uh, I, I rewatched it, um, like I said, last Friday and then mm-hmm. um, actually uh, earlier today. I, I yes. watched it the second time mm-hmm. and I definitely felt a certain way about it the first time. I felt a slightly different way about it the second time. What about you? I also felt differently after seeing it the second time. I think a big part of that is timing and how much timing and tension is important to a first watch and how much it's like seeing a magic trick once and then knowing how they how a magician performed it. It's like, ah, I've already seen this before. Yeah, I feel like the first time you watch a film, especially in a theater, it's like you're letting it wash over you. All you can do is absorb it as it comes to you. And the second time or even the third time, that's when you really start to get into like Mm -hmm. you already know the basic structure of what's going to happen. Now you start to notice the little things that add up to the overall story. But, you know, we can get into that. Let's um, let's talk about the production history. Yeah. And this isn't too long. We don't have a ton of info on this. Well, I, I did want to, you know. Before we even dig into David Fincher and Netflix, I think it's important just to like even just touch on Netflix in general. And since we haven't really touched on Netflix films on the podcast before, I think it's good to, you know, one, observe Netflix has clawed their way to Hollywood relevance, right? I mean, yes. When was the first the, the first time that they earned like an Oscar nomination was in 2014. And like that's a pretty good signal that a studio has, you know, earned a seat at the table. And they did that with, you know, documentary in 2014, The Square. And they've earned many nominations since. I mean, we got big wins with Best Director in 2019 and 2022, um, Roma and Power of the Dog, respectively. And, you know, you you mentioned it, but David Fincher did get nominated for um, the Netflix film Mank in 2021. So it's it's still, you know, I'm in the same boat where I like I think of Netflix and how how is that comparable to like these traditional big Hollywood studios, but they've definitely clawed their way there. And bringing in big directors like David Fincher, Wes Anderson, big Hollywood stars to be in these films, like it's it's their way of like really showing like, you know, we, we've earned our spot. And so with that, it's important to think about the relationship with David Fincher and Netflix and how that's influenced the journey of this film. Indeed. So, yeah, getting into the production history of this, there isn't much, you know, so this this will be a pretty short section. You know, you you touched on Mank. This film, The Killer, is the second feature film of an exclusive four-year deal between Fincher and Netflix. Mank came out in 2020. I have to admit, I haven't seen it. Are you gonna? Yeah, because we're gonna cover it. Yep, there we so, go. Yes, I, I will. <laughs> but um, this film's development, The Killer, it goes all the way back to 2007, when it was rumored that Fincher was interested in adapting the graphic novel. Brad Pitt's production company, Plan B, was actually going to develop it with Paramount doing the distribution. Now, Fincher originally wanted Brad Pitt for the role of the killer, but Pitt said that it was a little too nihilistic for him. But ultimately, Fincher decided to focus on another project, which ended up being The Social Network. And I think we can agree that we're all grateful for that because that is an excellent film. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2021, Fincher is looking for his next project after Mank, he revives this, he brings it to Netflix, and Plan B at this point was still involved and they would remain so, like we mentioned when we introed the film. Andrew Kevin Walker, who had famously written Seven, he was hired by Fincher to adapt the source material into a workable screenplay. And this is where Michael Fasttalker enters the picture. 
He mm-hmm. had been talking to David Fincher about doing a movie together, and he very much lobbied for this role. He more or less talked Fincher into casting him for this movie. Principal photography began in Paris in November of 2021. It continued in the Dominican Republic in December, and it moved to New Orleans later that month. It then moved to Chicago in February of 2022, and then to St. Charles, Illinois, which doubled for Beacon, New York, and then ultimately wrapped up in March of 2022. So kind of a while ago that this film ended production, and of course, it it enjoyed a limited theatrical release on October 27th of this year before it began streaming on Netflix on November 10th. And this film has drawn comparisons to the 1967 film Les Samurai, which I have to admit I have never heard of. Les Samurai is a a classic. Um, That's a great film. And just the very influential film um, draws a lot. I mean, it's in the title, but also draws a lot of inspiration from classic samurai um, films of the Ronin and then being able to one achieve achieve mystery vengeance and also seeking and seeking a, a strong pulp mystery so i think there's a lot of other comparisons right we talked about 1989's the killer um mm-hmm. i was actually reminded of the professional if you remember luc besson's film from the definitely. 90s definitely so again not untreaded waters no no this genre has certainly been done not that there's anything wrong with revisiting it because it is the type of movie that you can always lend some kind of a fresh perspective or a new take on. Right. And I think the fun part is how does that cast, how does that director, what's their take on it? And I guess like with that, let's start to get into these reasons for why, is one the, why wasn't the film better. And number one, we're going to well, let's talk a little bit about Michael Mindmelter and the story. Well, let me get your thoughts on this. Is Michael Fuel Pumper an A-lister? So my take, yes. I think that I'll definitely put that to one. We've seen Michael Bay Blader in a lot of big productions, summer box office blockbusters, uh, as as we know with the, the X-Men franchise, Hollywood-nominated films. And, well, Michael Shrimp Taster has been quite a, a mix of genres. But what's what's your take? I don't think he is, and I don't mean that as an insult to him, and I don't mean that he's not a talented actor, but I doubt the average moviegoer could pick his name out of a lineup. And to me, that just that means you're not an A-lister. doesn't mean you're not a great actor, because I think he is a great actor. I don't think he's a huge name. Now, that has nothing to do with whether or not he's the right choice for this movie or whether or not this is a great movie. But he has also, he hasn't done anything in a while. This was his first film since Dark Phoenix, which was a complete flop. And you could argue, you know, he wasn't, that wasn't his movie, right? Even though he was playing Magneto, which is a huge character. That movie was, of course, Dark Phoenix's movie. I don't know. He's he's always been, we talked about this on the Prometheus episode. He's just a, I don't know how to classify him. Like, is he an A-lister that can carry a movie? He carries this movie, but I don't know if he wants to be. He just doesn't seem like he wants to work that much. And more power to him, because knowing what I know about his personal life, which is not much, he lives a great life in Portugal. So fair to say, there's definitely a good case to say Michael Glassblender does have a bit, you know, there, there is a bit of a, a, one, a bit of a gap between his last film and this film. And then fair to say also that kind of a question, do, does he actually have that star power that should command uh, one should should command a list comparison. I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of hate comments about this. Like, no, you're wrong. You don't understand. It's just my opinion on it. Right. And I mean, I'm not going to be one to say that like Michael Danhauser's top of my list when I say like top A-list actors in Hollywood. There's definitely a lot more names that are drawing a lot more attention buzz and are continuously in continuously we're seeing in the headlines during award season. So it's, it's okay if he's not an A-lister. Um, or if it, how we traditionally think of an A-lister. He's still very talented. I agree. And I really like him in this film. I think he does a great job of playing a robotic sociopath. Because he is basically a robot in this movie. He has some feelings, and he mm-hmm. does take some things personally. Most of the time, unless he's doing the monologue stuff, right? How many lines in this film do you think he has? Probably, you know, under 10. 
right? It's not much. And he does the most with it. He's interacting among people, but not with them. He doesn't really talk to anyone completely detached. I think he does an outstanding job of this. He is cold as ice when he's in work mode. The way he executes that cab driver, the way he calmly explains to the hedge fund manager at the end how easily he could come back and kill him. I think he sells all of that really, really well. All of the action stuff, the physical elements of the role, I think he's really good at. And this is one of the best roles that I've ever seen him in. So hats off to him for that. Mm -hmm. That being said, it is one of the worst American accents I've ever heard since Liam Neeson and Taken. It's not convincing at all. Mm. Liam Neeson being the worst, though, I have to say. Hi, my name is Liam Neeson. <laughs> I'm an American citizen. I like to go to baseball games and eat hot dogs. Did you ever see um, the film Bridesmaids? Yes. Yeah. Um, I forget the name of the actor, but he, he plays the policeman originally from the IT crowd. He also has, yep. I think yep. he tries to do... <laughs> an American accent. And then people even say, what's with your accent? Like in the film, like it just so off, like it just really takes you out of it. He's like, I totally agree. He's Scottish, I think. Right. Yes. Scottish. Yeah. Yeah. Now you could always make the case that we don't really know if Fassbender's character who doesn't even have a name is American, right? We assume he's American because we know that he met the lawyer Hodges when he was at law school in new Orleans. Right. Right. He says that in the monologue. So there's a good chance he's American, but of course we don't really know. So maybe I'm making fun of his poor American accent for no reason. But but I still found it funny. Yeah. One, one thing to just enjoy. Yeah. I do like his nondescript outfits, like the bucket hat, the Skechers, the Fitbit. It all makes perfect sense for an assassin trying to stay anonymous. And David Fincher was specifically talking about this. I think it was the, a New York Times interview that he gave about the film he was saying how um you know when they were discussing like the look for the film and they were designing the look for the film that he felt tailored suits that james bond would wear they really don't work for someone who's trying to stay anonymous and they're very played out and he wanted to do the complete opposite of that and he wanted all of the clothes that the killer wears to be stuff that he could buy in an airport and i think that was a really important touch yeah. that really like i don't know if i want to call this movie realistic because i don't really know how the international assassin trade works but i just wanted to call that out because the outfits that he wears in this film i think are entirely appropriate for someone who's trying not to be noticed by anyone at all now i actually when you know when watching the film and looking at the outfits i i started to think real uh more on the metaphors that the actual one, what is a story trying to convey beyond like, are we looking at an actual like assassin? And I, you know, I saw a lot of, I thought a lot about how this compares to if one were to look at just a professional in general and like those outfits really do kind of fit like tech casual nowadays. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of the on the nose, we work call out <laughs> that he, um, and if I do think of this as like a metaphor for like a working professional, really interesting to see. Um, yeah, th- those relics kind of help to represent them and push through that metaphor, which you know I'll, I'll talk more about later. But always thought that was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. No, the the we work thing. I I thought of that too. How like they you know they recently went out of business. It had to be a deliberate. Not of course everything that Fincher puts into his films is is very purposeful, right? And right. you know you you mentioned WeWork. There's a ton of product placement in this film, mm-hmm. but it none of it felt unnatural to me. Like you know when you see it just shoved into a movie and it feels like completely out of place and yes, inappropriate, and and like good. they're not even trying to hide it; they're doing it shamelessly. Like this is I gratuitous. felt the opposite here. It like it sort of worked into the. <sighs> I, I guess I've, I've read online this is a dark comedy, and I can kind of see that, and I can see the, the product placement being worked into that, into that theme of things by Fincher. Yeah, and let the man eat McDonald's. Yeah. Look, if he doesn't want to eat the buns, that's on him. <laughs> no, what did you think of Fassbender in this film? I agree. It's very, it can always be a very, like, you know... Difficult line to tiptoe, and I think that Michael Bayblader did a really good job of being able to portray cold and calculated, but at the same time in a flawed way. 
And I think like that was this character. This is a flawed character that is a living contradiction. And it's through the actions that we, and it's through the actions, the facial twitches, um, that you have to be able to show that nuance. And I thought that Mindhauser did a great job of being able to display the nuance that this character shows and the contradiction that the character lives. Yeah, he, he's not perfect at his job, obviously, that we see, but he is pretty good, which he points right. out. Like He's like, you don't even have to be a genius. You just have to be pretty good at your job to do this, and I'm pretty good. Uh, I mean, do, why, does he, why does he just sound like an apathetic, an apathetic corporate-like drone? No, you know what? Like, I, I really did think, like, listening to a lot of, like, the the voiceover or a lot of the narration and just, like, take the killing out of it. And this is just a dude that's just, like, I do yoga and then I work on spreadsheets. This my I job. have to assume that a lot of that was lifted from the graphic novel, but, you know, I, I don't, I just don't know. Right. So we, we both feel pretty good about um, Michael Glassblower. So, <laughs> yes. But the rest of the cast, not a huge cast. Right. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, I was. There's not a lot to say about the supporting characters because the cast is really so small. Nobody else has a really chunky role. The secretary of the lawyer is really the only person you kind of feel sorry for. I think that's maybe one of the things about this film that would rub people the wrong way is mm, Glassmaker's character, the killer. He's not. There's nothing about him that's likable. Like you know that he has a girlfriend. He lis- He listens to the Smiths entirely too much. But, you know, there's not a whole lot of characterization. And again, like that's the that's the nature of what this film is. Right. It's this graphic novel about an anonymous killer who, you know, you never even learn his name. And when you never learn a character's name, I think inherently you're just not going to have a lot to uh, associate yourself um, with them. Not that you know most people would associate themselves with a um, assassin to begin with, but we've certainly seen films where you are asked to associate yourself with um, even a a character who engages in a a deplorable profession. But yeah, the rest of the cast, it's small. There's there's, um, some certainly some faces you recognize. Tilda Swinton is obviously the most well-known of the supporting cast, right? Right. I had some questions for the plot because we've both seen this twice. Man, how bad did the lawyer Hodges screw up, huh? Really... (sighs) It's really difficult to watch the scenes with the nail gun. Man, brutal. He seemed like genuinely annoyed that the killer showed up there. It's like, what did you expect this guy to do? You tried to have him killed? Yeah, and uh, in that line of work, um, maybe there should have been better protections in place for someone that's a bit of the, the middle manager for the criminal underworld. So that's my first question for you about this. So the killer, he botches the hit in Paris. He goes on the lamb, right? Hodges, the lawyer in New Orleans, who I guess is like his handler, would you call it? Not his boss per se, but like, you know, his handler. Yeah, yeah, the handler. So he tries to do a make good with the client by tying up loose ends, a.k.a. eliminating the killer and his girlfriend who live in the Dominican Republic, right? So he hires the brute and the expert to eliminate them, right? But obviously they don't do that. The killer isn't home. All they do is succeed in maiming his girlfriend. They're not again. It's not really clear how she gets away. We know right. she stabs the brute, but the, that's actually one of the holes I found in the plot. Like, how did she actually get out of the house and get escape into the jungle? Why were they only gone an hour anyway? But the and, question and, is, I was gonna say, and they and and one, the brute and the expert, they don't seem like the incompetent type to just like kick things under the rug. Like there must have been something unintentional. Whether right, right. So my question is. They get hired to tie up loose ends, but they fail. So did they tell Hodges that they screwed up? Would he then try to have them killed? Like, wouldn't they tell him that they failed? Did they tell him that they succeeded? Wouldn't that be considered vitally important information? I just found it odd that that's just never addressed. So my thoughts were that this was just another case of incompetency because Hodges looked genuinely surprised, right? Yeah, he did, yeah. And so with that, something didn't get something got lost in translation. And mm. there's a there's there's a case to say that uh at least trying to make some sort of sense of this is that yeah, I, I would I would think that there wasn't any communication put forth to like say, yeah, we, we didn't get him. We don't know where he is. Maybe a question for Andrew Kevin Walker. 
Like, did you leave that page of the screenplay out? Yeah. <laughs> My other question about the plot is, and again, maybe this is very faithful to the graphic novel, so forgive me if it is, but why would all these anonymous assassins allow their home addresses to be known to their employer on his, like, Rolodex? Uh, assassin code. I guess. I, I personally would use a P.O. box or a fake name or not my real address. That's pretty much what I'm getting at. Yeah. You figure in a world like that, you're just using burner phones all the time and having right. no way to track you. Well, but, that's the strangest part. He's using burner phones constantly, right? He, we see him right. smash. He probably goes through a half dozen of them. Yeah. He has all these um, storage mm-hmm. lockers set up right. like i think he i think he mentions he has six of them in the united states alone which is got he's got passports he's got cash he's got guns he's got rubber gloves he's got all the assassin stuff right mm-hmm. but his handler has his home address that seems stupid yeah interesting plot point or interesting yeah. plot hole uh, yeah is it a hole i just or is it just like dumb i don't know which is like which is what i'm <laughs> or, yeah no that's fair i think it's uh, i don't know if it's a hole it might be yeah i think it's just it seemed like, like you said, it just seems dumb. Why have that be a mistake that what looks to be a very calculated and strategic killer let that thread loose? Because we know if you want to get paid anonymously, there's ways to do it. Nobody needs to know your address. But mm-hmm. whatever. We probably, there's no answer to this. We've probably harped on it enough. Uh, we mentioned Tilda Swinton. I think she does make the most of her screen time. I really liked the scene with her in the restaurant where she did 95% of the talking. (laughs) Fassbender said like five words, but it's just, it's a really good example of casting. It's just an Oscar winning actress dropping a monologue for five minutes. She was hired for a reason. She kills it. I think it's great. Yeah. And for folks that haven't seen the film yet, the monologue is a highlight of the film. Um, For a film that doesn't have like a ton of dialogue, it is a treat to watch. (laughs) Yeah. I was a little disappointed that not only is that restaurant closed permanently, it is not even located in Beacon, New York. It was in, it was of course in St. Charles, Illinois. I was really disappointed because Beacon, New York is an area that I'm quite familiar with. You know, it's a little bit North of Westchester County, New York. It's a beautiful part of the country to go really any time of year, even when it's cold. And I was like, remarking to my wife i was like oh we could go there the next time we're in the new york area and then doing the research i'm like oh illinois i love that i love that you're a localization expert being able to call out that's not where that should be it's in the same way when i see films about san francisco and i think they shouldn't have been able to get there that fast there's at least 30 minutes of traffic the other well-known face in this movie or i don't know sort of well-known arliss howard He's, he's basically unrecognizable in this. He plays the hedge fund manager, basically the client. Mm-hmm. Yes. I didn't have a lot to do. All of his scenes, which was only a handful of them, it felt like a throwaway to me. The film did end rather abruptly, I, I thought, but I didn't mind the ending. It's fair to say that Fincher does kind of have a bit of a star system. Arliss Howard was in Mank, so that's where we see that bit of a continuation. But it's interesting how insignificant the role was considering how important that role was to the story for such a small part in the film. It also doesn't help that Arliss Howard is like a 60-something-year-old actor and his character was dressed like a 15-year-old skateboarder. Who's just making that money. <laughs> I didn't even recognize him at first, to be honest. Because I, I knew just he was like... in the film from the, from the, like, the opening credits. But I'm like, Arlo, I'm like, when is Arliss Howard going to show up in this film? And I barely recognize him until he took the hat off. It's interesting to me also just to like the scene where, you know, you, you finally see the uh, see who, who it is that ordered this uh, botch job. And I had it on the tip of my tongue. I'm like, wait, I've seen this guy in something before. Have you ever seen Moneyball? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, Lost you're... World Jurassic Park. <laughs> Peter Ludlow. <laughs> so quite the career yeah um but yeah yeah. he's been around a couple other things i noticed about the story there's a lot of globe trotting in this film but i have to say everything felt pretty small to me did you get the same sensation so we're starting to kind of touch a little bit about you know how the film was shot some of the cinematography but i do think that in terms of like world building or at least just like how do you capture the sets not really exotic grandiose or No, except for the uh, Dominican Republic stuff. There's not a lot of wide shots. Nope. Like Paris is just him staring at a building for for 20 minutes 
He's in an airport for 20 minutes. But we go to New Orleans, Florida, allegedly upstate New York, Chicago. I don't know. It's just like his character just shows up in front of a building. Yeah, you could have argued throw any other cities out there and that's where he could have been, right? It seemed that way. As usual with Fincher's work, I I thought the pacing was really nice, especially once it got going. Um, The opening stuff in Paris was like painfully slow for me, especially on the rewatch. That's some of the stuff I fast forwarded through, full disclosure. But once the action got going, I was rarely bored by what the protagonist was doing. He was very, very busy. He was always doing something with a purpose. The New York Times review called Taskmaster's character boring. I do agree with that on paper. Like, there's nothing inherently interesting about his character, right? But Mm -hmm. we don't know his name. We said that apart from the monologue, we don't know a whole lot about him. He lives with this woman in the DR. He seems to care for her. But I think the pacing makes up for it, right? Like, the, the main character's personal life is not supposed to be something that you're spending too much time thinking about. I think that's, yeah. where, that's where the film worked for me, right? It's like, okay, we don't know anything about this guy. The only thing that matters is what he's doing. Yes, and that's where, you know, I talked about this before. How do you do a cold, calculated performance without just falling flat? That's one of the challenges and then being able to show nuance. I thought he did a great job. I wouldn't call his performance boring. No, not at all. Uh, a couple things that I noticed, because there's, there's dialogue that's lifted from other stuff. If you can think of 12 things that can go wrong with a crime, you're a genius. And I'm not a genius. This is lifted almost verbatim from the film Body Heat in a scene between William Hurt and Mickey Rourke. Rourke's character tells Hurt's character, a hundred things can go wrong with a crime. And if you, can, if you can think of 20 of them, you're a genius. And Counselor, you're no genius. I thought that was a cool little bit. Mm-hmm. And then did you get a kick out of the aliases that the killer was using? Oh, all you the mean, names uh, on the credit cards and passports all in, and stuff? All in the family. Yeah. Uh, George Jefferson, cheers. Archie yeah. Bunker, Lou Grant, Howie Cunningham, Sam Malone. Pretty funny that no one called him on it. The, the odd couple. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What was it? Felix Unger. <laughs> yeah. There was. A, there was. There was a good. I, I liked those little references. Yep. But yes. I gotta say, Anton, they were sitting on all the variations of Fassbender, and they just didn't use them. Think of all the funny names that our podcast alone could have provided them with. That would have been much better. Boilermaker, <laughs> bookbinder, weed killer, pan cleaner, bed fixer, sheep herder, <laughs> butter maker, uh, fish hugger, drink water, book cleaner, fast burner, barn herder. Barn Burner. We could go on. Johnson. Oh, wait, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you that know what I'm referencing, you'll know. Ultimately, this is just a very straightforward revenge story, right? When you really think about it. The killer, he rescues his girlfriend. But after that, there's not really any stakes. It's all vendetta at that point. Like the lawyer tells him, Hodges, he could disappear at any point with his money. But he doesn't. He chooses not to. Didn't bother me at all that he let the hedge fund guy live. I don't know. I didn't think there was anything unusual about that. He's a pretty calculated killer. You know, he figured that killing a billionaire in their home, it's probably going to attract too much unwedded attention. Wasn't worth the trouble. That's how I read it. If it was anybody else, he would have killed them. I mean, I kind of saw it as it was a... It just added to his life of a contradiction and that through the narration, he keeps saying you can't be empathetic. You don't you don't kill just to, because you want to kill you. You kill for the job. And like, obviously, the whole film is like killing because he cares about someone and um, he chooses not to kill when he had the chance because he was like, OK, like, here's a warning. I'm not going to kill you, even though like I can. And so he is a contradiction. And I think that was just another example of that. That's for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Before we get into the next reason, for all you anime heads out there, can we get a Golgo 13 adaptation? Why has no yep. one attempted this yet? Like what are we what are they waiting for? Yes, please. I am right. very all in on a Golgo 13 adaptation. That's sort of what this reminded me of in a way. Like they're they're different characters, but they're mm-hmm. there's a lot of similarities there, right? I mean, I think arguably Golgo 13 has superior stories and agree in general and, and in general like actually has a lot more to work from than not to say that the story itself like would you agree that like the story is very simple right we've talked about that yeah for sure yeah yeah the story is very simple do you think maybe it could have done with a bit more do you think maybe 
building more of a system would have been cool or maybe building more of a universe and this would have been cool no i'm okay with it because I'll, i'll explain this i don't like it when films or series get too far into the world building. Like Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I started to lose interest in the John Wick films is the deeper they got into like the mythology and the world building, the less interested I became. I liked Mm -hmm. the John Wick stuff more when you got very brief glimpses of the world that he was part of, but you didn't get, they didn't go very deep into it. And by the time you have him meeting like people burning incense in the desert and there's these people on the phones with tattoos and there's this person that works for the king and there's a council. I'm just checked out at that point. So I was okay with the world building that they did here. I thought there was just enough of it to tell the story that they wanted to tell. No, that's fair. That's fair. I think even just looking at like the source, like we, we touched on GoGo 13. Once you invest more in the depth of either the universe or character developments, or even if you get to know more of the stories of the characters, that's what makes GoGo 13 more interesting for me because you start to invest more in, in either how are his victims, the lives impacted beyond like the story that you're seeing of the assassination. I mean, right, you, you touched on it for this film, for, for the killer. Who did we end up sympathizing with? the most for i guess that secretary right and like you 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 genuinely feel bad for her for the when you get like a when you get a little bit of a story of like please make it look like this is something that like i can still get life insurance for even with that line you start you feel that twinge of sympathy she could have been lying though you never know i mean she could have been she's working for hodges (laughs) right she she knew what she was doing i mean she knew what the business was right so she was um she was involved in an um, assassination conspiracy scheme, but yeah, that's a good point. I mean, who knows? Like, I don't think Fincher will ever do a sequel to this. He doesn't. He's not. He's not really a sequel guy. That's something they could potentially explore in a sequel. I mean, it's just kind of like at the same time too. It's the dude that ended up hiring him to do the job in the first place. You know nothing about him. You know right. all you know is he's just this rich guy that ordered a hit that went wrong and he gets no there's no retribution for that despite ha- him having done like an immoral act. He just goes scot free. And I kind of wonder like okay, so there's this like monster that's still out there. When I think about Golgo 13, there's more of a I guess like a complete story that's told about understanding What are the repercussions of the actions done? Who are these characters actually ordering these hits and what lives are being impacted? Maybe that's not the story being told here in this particular film. And that's the takeaway. Like this isn't about character development. It's about a simple story of a man like going on a journey of vengeance. But I think that, uh, that it could have done with maybe a bit more complexity. I do think part of that down is down to the brilliance of Fincher's storytelling. He, he never gives you fluff. He gives you just right. as much as you need. Never, he doesn't give you anything extra. And that's one of the many things that I love about his film. There's no yes. filler. Yes, At I no agree with point that. do you think that your time is being wasted by what he is showing you on screen. Yeah, and I, and I agree with that. I do think that what could have elevated this film a bit more was maybe is just elements of that. How do we kind of build even more sympathy or understanding for the universe? That's all I ask. Fair enough. Number two reason why this wasn't better. The cinematography and the production. Anton, this looks like a $25 million film. Are you saying that this looks like a film that should have gone straight to TV? I'm not saying that. This is why we included the caveat about the budget in the beginning. If this really is a $175 million movie, they might as well have burned $100 million of that. It would be one of the biggest wastes of money that I can think of in recent memory. There, Visually, there is no justification for that amount of money. If Fincher did not direct this, this would be one of those action movies that gets buried on Prime Video that you never see or have never heard of, and you would just scroll right by it. I don't mean to say anything negative about Fincher's production. He does a lot of post-production work that you probably don't think about, and you probably don't notice. There's a lot of hidden CGI and hidden, hidden editing stuff that he puts into a lot of his movies. And if you're a serious Fincher fan, you're going to know what I'm talking about. But if that budget is, is real as reported, I just I have no idea where that money went. He wasn't given the, that full budget, right? I don't know. We don't know what the budget is. Right. If it really was $175 million, I have no idea where that money went. Right, I mean, Because you can't enough. see any of it on screen. 
Right. Fair enough. Speculation. Yeah. There's a lot of speculation where the money could have gone. Yeah. I really right. hope it's not that much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, agreed. Okay. I was reading a bit more about the, um, you know, because Netflix, some of their budgets for these films are like outrageously high, but it can be deceptive, right? Sometimes the budget can look high on paper, but it can be misleading. Because Netflix doesn't generate anything from box office revenue, right? The theater release. Mm hmm. There's no back-end box office revenue percentage that they can offer to their stars. So this means they have to pay higher salaries to attract the big names. They pay more upfront for the big names, uh, meaning people like Fincher, and a lot of the technical departments get deprioritized. So the big names get more of the budget, and then things like design and location, they get skimped on. And this is how a film like Red Notice can cost $200 million and look like absolute crap. Now, what's interesting is I, you know, let's kind of do a comparison on the budget of this to, you know, Red Notice and then The Gray Man. Where do you think that kind of holds up with the same speculation? I think this is a better looking film than both of those, but those had much more elaborate, probably much more expensive action sequences. You know, The Gray Man had that basically like a 20-minute shootout thing with trains and buses where basically the characters destroy what looks like half of Prague. Mm -hmm. And this film didn't have anything that elaborate. This is all speculation on our part, but you see where I'm going with this. Like, I just, I don't know where the money right. went. Right, and like, I, I, I do agree with you. It makes sense, it's very plausible. And when we think about what Netflix has had to do to, again, claw themselves up to the conversation, it makes sense that some of the things the studio would have to sacrifice would be how do we like cut budget on production or how do we cut budget on effects because we have to pay these big stars. Right. And this film, it has that Netflix look to it. I'm going to articulate this. I have a feeling some of our listeners may know what I'm talking about and they may, be, they may agree with this. Now, this is subjective, so... If you don't, if this stuff doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother you. A lot of Netflix productions, a lot of newer films in general, they have this over-polished, sterile, very digital sheen to them, almost like they're filmed too perfectly, like a commercial. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. So we see a bit of that, um, especially in the a lot of the well-lit scenes um, where everything looks very, almost like washed out, but clean. Yes. A very LED look. A lot of L you can tell there's a lot of LED lights. And just for the record, I have nothing against digital cinematography. I love plenty of films that are shot digitally. I do think it takes a super talented DP to make it look good. I was just amazed to learn that this is something that Fincher had been cooking for over a decade. Like, this is a perfectly fine action movie, but it looks like something he slapped together in a few weeks. Very much like Netflix movie of the week feel to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've been trying, I've been stewing on this for a long, long time. This is not just having to do with um, this film, but a lot of more recent films in general. I, I did some Googling on this and I was you know, trying to figure out a way to like, articulate this. Like, why do all these movies look the same? Why do a lot of Netflix productions and things that are filmed digitally look the same? W what's up with that? I found some good articles that cover this. There's one um, on Vice that goes into detail about this. The title is, Why Does Everything on Netflix Look Like That? But the <laughs> best thing I found that covers this. It was a substack uh, written by an individual named Haley Nauman. Here's some of what the author writes in a blog post from the substack. It's called The Contagious Visual Blandness of Netflix. Quote, to be clear, this isn't about whether the movie was realistic. It's actually specifically about how movies these days look. That is more flat, more fake, oversaturated, or else overfiltered like an Instagram photo in 2012, but rendered in commercial-like high def. This applies to prestige television, too. There are more green screens and sound stages, more CGI, more fixing it in post. As these production tools have gotten slicker and cheaper and thus more widely abused, it's not that everything looks obviously shitty or too good to, f to be true. It's actually that most things look mid in the exact same way. The ubiquity of the look is making it harder to spot, and the overall result is weightless and uncanny. An endless stream of glossy vehicles that are easy to watch and easy to forget. I call it the Netflix shine, inspired by one of the worst offenders, although some reading on the topic revealed others call it more boringly the Netflix look, end quote. Here's another quote, and I know these are lengthy, but bear with me because I think this is really good stuff. Quote, 
Everyone is lit perfectly and filmed digitally on RAW and tweaked to perfection. It makes everything have a fake feeling to it. Commercials use the same cameras and color correction, so everything looks the same. Every shot looks like it could be used in a stock photo, and it looks completely soulless. No film grain, no shadows on faces, and no wide shots. I have a theory that going from tungsten to LED lighting added to this as well. Tungsten allows for more accurate color in camera, but LEDs are cheaper and more convenient. So the solution is to film in a nice digital camera and fix the color in post. However, this makes for far less creativity on set and less use of shadows. Green screens make it worse, as they also require flatter lighting to work. Marvel films are very obviously made in post, and they all look very flat and not real. Even shitty, low-budget 90s comedies look better, and I think this can be attributed to the lighting, end quote. Very astute quotes that I think, like you said, really get on the nose what we're seeing here. That really good point they make about the Marvel films. A lot of the later Marvel films, they all look the same and they all have a, a blandness to them. So I couldn't have said it better myself. That's why I wanted to read these quotes from this blog post, even though they're pretty lengthy. Again, that is the substack of Haley Nauman, if you want to check that out. Some viewers actually prefer this look to them, right? Like the clean digital look. So this is entirely subjective. So we're not sitting here saying, this is the right way or wrong way to film a movie. It just is what right. it is. And just full disclosure, Anton, I don't think that this film, The Killer, falls into that bucket completely. This is a very well-filmed movie. But it, because it's Fincher, I'm holding it to a pretty high standard. I don't think it looks as good as any of his previous films, right? Seven, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Social Network, Gone Girl. All of them look better than this. I agree with you. You can't really compare this film in the way it looks to very, very strong, strong movie list. But at the same time, not trying to take away from the killer and the movie in itself. Like it's, again, not perfect, but not his best work. No. Well, that's the thing. I was trying to do this mental exercise on the second watch where I'm like, okay, if Fincher's name wasn't attached to this, what would I think of it? And obviously, I don't know. It's a hypothetical. But I think it's, it's an interesting question to occasionally ask yourself. Mm -hmm. Remember we said that on the Alien 3 recording? Because that, that film has its defenders. And like, look, you like what you like, right? But it's like, would anyone remember Alien 3 if Fincher's name wasn't associated with it? I kind of doubt it. Well, I mean, arguably, I think more people just don't even know that David Fincher's name is attached to it. Alien fans do. But yeah, I mean, alien right. fans do, but in general. That's a good point. No, no, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did like the main titles, the rapid fire stylized main titles. It's one of the things that you can always look forward to with a Fincher film. He always puts thought into that. But overall, I just think the look of this film, it's pretty bland. It's, it's well filmed, but it's bland. I call it luxury Netflix. Mm -hmm. Like it's better than your usual Netflix production, but... Oh, no. I just, I expect better from Fincher. I mean, if one thinks of the metaphor of the killer and how does that fit, in, fit into someone even like working a professional like corporate job or a job that kind of has them being like a mindless drone focused on like being a living contradiction, maybe like that's where we think about this film in itself and that David Fincher is trying to make a good film, but the contradiction of the industry is the industry is not trying to make good films anymore. So that was the vehicle that <laughs> Fincher decided to even put this film out. <laughs> well, he nails the editing. The editing's great. The sound design is great. He gets those things perfect almost always, right? Like right. one of the first things I think of with a Fincher film is editing. They're always like tight, crisp. This is no exception. I, I like the action sequences. Nothing groundbreaking, but I thought they were all well done. Yep. No, I agree with that. You know, this very much, it has the same look, feel, and vibe to like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Gone Girl, which is like slick, cynical, never relaxing. That's the stuff that like Fincher get, always gets right, right? Like that type mm -hmm. of feel to a film. Yes, there was a, similarly to those films, really captures the tension very well. Did you like the chapters it was broken up into? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a fun, uh, fun way to really tie in, you know, like we said, a lot of locations in the film. And I assume that's like a direct lift from the graphic novel. Like, I don't know how it's broken up, but I'm, I'm assuming it's like that. I didn't like the score, really. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. 
They've done some great stuff on the social network and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Sometimes I just want an orchestral score, though. There was parts of this film where the score was pretty loud and it sounded like someone left the microwave running. Was it the social network that was Trent Reznor's first film score? Yes. I believe him and Ross won the Oscar for that. Yeah. No, that was... I remember uh, award season that year hearing his name come up. I was like, that guy? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm a big Nine Inch Nails fan, so Mm -hmm. I was really happy to see him recognize for his work in a very different way yeah no i i totally agree fun to see artists in still practice their creativity in different ways yeah but this score that they did for the killer eh, pretty forgettable for me Mm -hmm. i think ultimately i just prefer orchestral scores over the you know electronic industrial type of sound Mm -hmm. that these guys do I like it sometimes, but like I just sometimes I just like a traditional film score. But do you, but do you think it fit this film? Because I think personally, <laughs> I think that it almost does fit like a calculated, almost like I even touched on this before, tech esque uh, fit for the main character. I suppose it was an appropriate score. But having watched the film twice now and listening to the score a bit online, it's it's just meh. Okay. Not about it. And now, how often do you have the Smiths on your playlist? Not often. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're not going to have Morrissey on the show. Look, if we can get him, get if him. If we can get him, why not? But... Yeah. Like, we're not going to say no, but uh, uh, Anton, yeah. anything to add before we bring this home? No, I um, just want to emphasize that it's a simple story that makes up for a very. I guess, like, complex dish at the end of the day. There you go. Now that we're going to get into our rating, did we like it? I did like it. I liked it better the first watch than the second, which is why I, you know, included the stinger in the beginning of this episode of, like, I I think this would be interesting to revisit after a year or two. I think it's a well-made, entertaining action movie. I think it's well-paced. It's got some good action sequences. I really like the lead performance from Michael Grasscutter. But as a David Fincher film, I think it ranks pretty low for me. I would put The Game, Seven, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Social Network, Panic Room, Zodiac, Fight Club, and Gone Girl all ahead of this. Now, a lot of that just speaks to the excellent track record that David Fincher has, right? Like, apart from Alien 3, he's never made a bad film. I would probably rank this over Benjamin Button just because I found that movie pretty slow and not rewatchable. <laughs> but I haven't seen it in a long time, so that's tough to say. I haven't seen Mank. Alien 3 is like, you know, we've talked about this. It's like, do you even count that as a Fincher film? Yes and no. This is sort of going to be similar to the Spielberg discussion we had on the Lost World episode. Am I holding this film to an insanely high standard because it's a Fincher film? Yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. I am. I, I feel the same way here that I do about Spielberg. This movie's fine. It's good. But compared to the legendary stuff that Fincher has put out in the past, it's pretty mid for me. It's a good movie, but it really does feel like a Netflix movie both times I watched it. I would definitely recommend it if you like action movies or Fincher or Fastbender. I can't decide if I want to give this a C plus or a B minus. The first watch, I would have given it a B minus. The second watch, I would give it a C plus. So I'm going to say C plus for now. Okay. But again, I think it's something we could revisit in the future. Nice. So from, you know, from my perspective, I really wanted to, one, I tried not to compare this film as closely to David Fincher's like you know more highly uh, critically acclaimed films, but at the same time that's difficult. And you know I know Pat, you shared the same difficulty. So what I tried to to do with that same lens was compare this film to other films um, that Netflix puts out and distribute and, or produced. And when I think of like other films that were nominated for Best Picture in the past, whether it's Power of the Dog. Trial of the Chicago Seven, um, you know, Marriage Story, The Irishman. I much preferred this film 
And I think it was because of Fincher's ability to take a very simple story and, you know, make it look very good and and able to tell the story very well. And so I think even with that consideration and thinking of Netflix as a whole, there's still probably a lot that a, a lot of growing the the studio still has and its influence on the style of films and how films are looking in the industry, I think is something that still needs to, I guess, evolve over time. But even with that consideration where we are in history now for where Netflix is as a studio, this particular film, you know, I think did a really great job. And for a David Fincher film released on Netflix, I'm not unhappy. And with that, I do have to give this film a B from me. I think that um, I'm going to go back and look at this film in the future. And hopefully I can still agree with myself for having graded it as highly as I did. It's an interesting way of rating it. If you weren't comparing it to other Netflix films, what would you give it, though? Or I guess that's an impossible question. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of hypotheticals there. I think I just tried to think of it from in terms of like, hmm, who are the what who are the true peers to this film? Because you can't I don't think you can look at like Fight Club and say, oh, yeah, that's a fair comparison to this film. I think you can. It was made by the same person, but not under the same conditions or like the same the not under the same studio, not under the same exact same team, not the same like score folks. So same folks that made social network. Uh, fair enough. That's a curious that that opens a curious discussion then, which we won't get into now. But it's like how much control you'd have to think Fincher had total control. No, fair. I would I would think so. But maybe in the same way that like our taste change, maybe Fincher's taste change has changed as well. Very and good point. So, Bottom line, can we get Fincher off Netflix? Like it's it's nice of them to give him <laughs> so much money, but honestly, his work just deserves to be given the full theatrical treatment. It just re- it requires it. Yeah. I don't like, I just, I don't like, maybe this is just my own prejudice as a um, consumer that I just need to overcome. But like, I don't want Fincher relegated to just streaming. Like, I want to see his stuff in the theater. Yep. I, I agree with, and then the same way that I think part of it is also the impact of what you get when you see the film in theaters and also just the association. Netflix still has this uh, reputation of if you're watching a ne- something on Netflix it's like oh that's just that's just streaming or like that's right. just something you watch at home right and, may- and well, maybe we need uh, to get past that yeah maybe we're just old i don't know yeah maybe but um that's it for the killer anton this was fun little um not an emergency episode but like a you know impromptu last minute i like this yeah well it's a good way to enjoy the the holidays and to celebrate you know the thanksgiving and have this little black friday treat for our for our listeners indeed well everyone enjoy your black friday and the rest of your weekend um man city are playing liverpool tomorrow that's always fun if you like that thing um and then listeners can hear the last samurai episode next week but um from all of us here at why wasn't it better have a wonderful weekend take care folks Thank you.